Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hello. And welcome to another edition of Frommus Peace Theatre. I am your host, Jeff Frommus. Today, we shall be reading from another chapter of our book here, the novelization of The Return of the Living Dead, adapted by John Russo, based on the screenplay by Dan O'Bannon. When we last left off in our story, our heroes, or perhaps we should Think of them more as bumbling fools. Uh, Frank and Freddy accidentally released a, grow- a glowing green gas known as 245 trioxin out of the barrel containing what we will here re- refer to as the Tar Man. The gas, of course, hit our heroes in the face, causing them to pass out, and the gas creeped up into the cold refrigerator unit where it was storing a cadaver in a drawer. What further could possibly happen? Let's read and find out. Chapter four. At Dacha on the outskirts of Moscow. Moscow. Now that is something we uh, are unfamiliar with in the Return of Living Dead universe. What does Moscow have to do with anything, John Russo? Well, let's find out. Uh, on the outskirts, on the outskirts of Moscow, two Englishmen and an American were drinking vodka after a sumptuous summer cookout with their attractive Russian wives. The two Englishmen were Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, who, in their high-ranking posts with the British diplomatic service, had fed secret information to the Soviets for twenty years before their cover was blown and they had to escape from England. The American was Raymond Ashton, who, as a Soviet agent in place, in quotes, had so cleverly deceived his superiors within the CIA that he rose to a position of trust and influence, enabling him to subvert and undermine U.S. intelligence efforts. Over a 12-year career, during which time he was secretly in the employ of the KGB, he arranged for the arrest and execution of dozens of American agents operating undercover in communist bloc nations and carried out his devastating mission so skillfully that he was never suspected as a traitor. In 1970, Raymond Ashton was the CIA's chief liaison. Boy, this is really a lot of history here, very dense. Uh, Yeah, so Raymond was the CIA's chief liaison officer with the U.S. Army in Operation Drummer Boy, the roll-up of the Darrell chemical crisis near Pittsburgh. It was Ashton who, with his intimate knowledge of cryptograph codes, succeeded in diverting 24 of the steel drums containing deactivated corpses from their intended destination the CIA forensic laboratory at Langley to the unit to the Unita medical supply warehouse in Louisville, Kentucky. When the diversion 
was discovered by Ashton's military liaison, Colonel Peter Hoffman. Ashton killed off Hoffman and then fled from the United States to Canada and from Canada to Russia, where he was a welcomed hero and was awarded the Red Banner Order for Outstanding Patriotic Services over many years. That's right. A communist subplot um, in which this was no accident. It wasn't a typical army fuck up. It was uh, on purpose army fuck up to... uh, uh, release these Easter eggs and no mention of uh, Colonel Glover, as we see in Return of the Living Dead. Raymond Ashton, Guy Burgess and Donald Donald McLean were, were rewarded for their contributions uh, to the communist cause. Oh, boy, this didn't age well. Well, maybe it did. I don't know. Uh, they were each guaranteed a si- sizable pensions for life. In addition to the fat salaries they received as consultants to the KGB, their fringe benefits included chauffeur-driven limousines and other special privileges normally reserved for commissars, such as access to fine wine, meat, clothing, household goods, and other capitalist luxuries. Remember, in communist Russia or in communist Soviet Union, you don't get any of that good stuff. They lived like nobility on their rent-free dakas. I guess that's a, I don't know what that is. That's like a house of some kind. While the vast majority of Soviet citizens had to wait for years to be assigned a modest one-room apartment. However, they occasionally felt twinges of nostalgia for the homelands they had betrayed, and they attempted to eradicate these maudlin sentiments by drinking too much vodka and by rehashing their past exploits in the world of international espionage. While their wives were in the house cleaning up after the picnic meal, the men talked and drank at the table on the patio. Well, tomorrow will be the big day for you former compatriots back in the States. Guy Burgess said to Raymond Ashton. Why? asked Ashton, pretending not to know. July 4th, Burgess boomed. Independence Day. The day you threw off the chains binding you to our jolly King George III. Who's jolly King George, said Donald McLean with a slurred tongue. Not mine, not yours either, old chap. Not anymore, Burgess agreed. He was a fleshy florid man with a wide fish-like mouth and a shock and a shock of thick purely white hair snide and arrogant he seemed i just like reading in this voice snide and arrogant he seemed the type that most people would instinctively distrust which was perhaps why they had bent over backwards to trust him too far McLean, by contrast, was a picture of civility slanting towards timidness when he wasn't drunk. Short and thin and balding with a small mouth and a weak chin, it didn't seem possible that he could be self-assertive, much less destructive. And this demeanor, he had helped get away with quite a lot. How long now since you, uh, er, defected, he said to Raymond Ashton. Fourteen years, said Ashton. Oh, he's American. Fourteen years, said Ashton. Fourteen years since Operation Drummer Boy. He took a hearty sip from his tumbler full of Russian vodka, much stronger than any American brand. He was drinking it neat in that Russian manner, instead of diluting it with ice. A closet alcoholic before defecting, his alcoholism was pretty much out in the open now, especially when he was with his friends. 
Even so, he still had a more commanding presence than they and managed to look more youthful despite the fact that, like them, he was in his late 50s. His light brown hair did not easily show. Do we need all this description? Uh, His light brown hair did not easily show its streaks of gray. His pale blue eyes retained an alert anthetical gleam, and his body was still lean and hard thanks to a daily regimen of jogging and calisthenics that kept at bay the deteriorating effects of his alcohol addiction. Uh, Seems to me it's about time for the drumbeat to start rolling again, Guy Burgess joked, referring to Operation Drummer Boy. Uh, I can't, I don't know who's who. Unless they've rolled it up tight since then, said McLean. After all, they've had 14 years to do it. What do you think, Raymond? Ashton said, Comrade Zortov and I had a discussion about the very topic last week. Burgess and McLean perked up. Gregory Zortov was the first director of the KGB division, to which all three defectors had been assigned in Moscow. It was unusual these days, removed from the heavy action as they were, for any of them to have a private audience with the first director. So the other two men at the picnic table were keenly interested as to what Ashton could or would say more about what he and Zoltov had discussed. I should think, Burgess prodded, that 14 years would... I should think, Burgess prodded, that 14 years be enough time for the CIA or the U.S. Army to locate the 24 missing drums. Yes, our former uh, uh, associates should be quite up to such a task, McLean chuckled, even with them being as incompetent as we know them to be. Burgess laughed. (laughs) But Ashton didn't. Comrade Zoltov and I believe the other... Comrade Zoltov and I believe otherwise, he squelched, with underlying anger in his voice and a piercing cold glint in his pale blue eyes. The other two men understood why he was reacting so vehemently. He was the only he was the only one of the three whose final mission as a bona fide spy might still be playing itself out, and it might, even at this late day, Late date have devastating repercussions upon the enemy. The rest of the work that these defectors were concerned with these days was a dull, timid, and boring, and the insulting, demeaning part, the part that drove them all to drink too much, was that they sensed that their fellow Soviets didn't truly trust them. They had harmless, undemanding, and uninspired desk jobs as if their superiors suspected that they might switch their loyalties back to their homelands if they were trusted with something vital. The vodka and his longing for renewed sense of self-importance caused Raymond Ashton's tongue to loosen in an attempt to impress his companions. He told them that Comrade Zortov confided to me that according to our intelligence sources, the 24 steel drums are still stored exactly where I misdirected them. Neither the CIA nor the U.S. Army has tracked them down in all of this time. I told Zoltov that this doesn't surprise me at all. I must repro—I—I I, I myself, I myself reprogrammed the computer and scrambled cryptographic codes. What are these cryptographic codes? After the shipment was on its way. 
I might have gotten away with it and remained an agent in place if Colonel Hoffman hadn't stuck his nose in where it didn't belong. Even still, if I would have had time to make his death look like an accident, dot, dot, dot. You were better off defecting, said Burgess, running his fingers through his white hair. We all were. Time was running out on us. We, we'd have eventually been caught. We live well here, said McLean, trying to convince himself as much as the others. Exceptionally well. Where else would we have such lovely wives, twenty years younger than ourselves, and without their pretty little heads screwed up by the women's liberation movement and other decadent capitalist nonsense? I'll drink to that, said Ashton, and they all had a toast and laugh. I still don't see, Burgess mused, how Zotov... Zotov could be so sure that those drums haven't been discovered. The CIA probably located them and got rid of them by now, safely de decontaminated. They wouldn't want us to know, of course, so they probably planted a bit of disinformation in Zotov is failing for it, is falling for it. Do you honestly believe that the first director is that stupid, Ashton sneered. I can disabuse you of that notion. Six months ago, KGB agents in America serendipitously entered the warehouse of the medical supply company in Louisville. They inspected the drums and their contents. The corpses are still inside. Wait a minute. So they actually went KGB. I've, <laughs> I forgot this part. So six months ago, KGB agents in America entered the warehouse and snuck in into the you need a supply medical house they inspected the drums and their contents the corpses are still inside but the drums are old corroded and ready to crack it will happen again mclean crowd crowed clapping ashen on the shoulder in drunken glee yes burgess said if what you say is true it is ashton smirt it is only a matter of time and the terror will be loose upon our enemies once again Okay, we're going to chapter five. So that was like the most ridiculous chapter. I, I remember reading that and just being like, what is this fucking, like, why did he have to add that? The only thing I could guess is maybe, um, I don't know if this is one of those like deals where you get paid for every, like a like a, like a dime for every word you write. And maybe he just, you know, squeezed out an extra chapter of ridiculousness just so he could, you know, make an extra buck. I can't, can't blame him for that. Chapter five. Tina Vitali hated riding in Suicide's ancient beat-up convertible, which stunk of cat shit even with the top down. Suicide and his mother lived in a claustrophobic slum apartment where they kept 23 cats at, last, uh, at latest count, although the number was constantly increasing due to the birth rate and adoption of additional strays. Suicide blamed it on his mother. She just loves cats, can't turn them away, he said. And if that explained it uh, as if that explained it all quite logically, he never admitted that her fixation might be considered neurotic, even psychotic, probably because if she had to be committed to an insane asylum, no one would be around to cook and clean up for him. But it was all his mother's fault. Why didn't he allow the cats to ride en masse in his car? Sometimes he'd be cruising along with a dozen or so furry creatures for company pissing and shitting, screwing and meowing all over the upholstery. Discourages the narcs from shaking me down was the only explanation that Tina had ever heard from suicide. 
who was an addict and a pusher. Tina wished her friends would have just let her go to see Freddie all by herself. Then she immediately felt then she immediately felt guilty for not wanting them around. But more and more, they seemed weird to her and immature. They wouldn't have forced themselves on her, she thought, if they had sufficient couth. She would have traveled to the Unita warehouse in a nice clean bus. But here she was crammed in the back seat of a stinky convertible with scuzz, legs and Chuck. Suicide meat and Casey were all in the front. Nobody could have asked for a weirder, crazier driver than suicide who weaved all over the road the way he looked, uh, the way he looked. No cop would even bother giving him a traffic citation, even for a minor offense. They just gun him down on site. His skull had been shaved and then allowed to grow for about a week till it was covered with a uniform growth of stubble about an eighth of an inch long. He looked like a lumpy coconut with a flattened nose and black rotten teeth, and he was wearing a studded dog collar around his scrawny neck. She glanced up at the hev heavily clouded sky as lightning flashed and presumably thunder rolled, but she couldn't hear it since Scuzz's ghetto blaster was going at full volume in his lap. She hoped desperately that the impending rain would hold off a while. Uh, she hoped desperately that the impending rain would hold off while they were in the car because the awful smell would suffocate them if they had to put the top up. To try and numb her olfactory nerves, she took a healthy swig off of some cheap, sweet wine when Scuzz handed her the bottle. Suicide had traded someone for a case of the wine, which had been swiped from a party or a bar mitzvah in return for a vial of angel dust. So here they were, busting along in a convertible that was going to fall apart at any second in the middle of the street. And when the cops came to investigate the accident, they'd have found seven punkers stoned on rot gut wine that they had been passing around and guzzling while they were driving. They'd probably get sentenced to hard labor or firing squad or something. Where are we going anyway? Suicide yelled. Scuzz turned the volume down slightly on his ghetto blaster. It's a party, Casey shouted. To pick up Freddie, Tina interjected. She didn't want this caper to get any further out of hand. She was still clinging to the notion that she and Freddie might be able to sneak off somewhere and be alone. Oh, yeah, said Suicide. What the fuck is Freddie up to these days? He got himself a job, said Tina, leaning forward to yell this information into Suicide's ear. No shit. What job? He's a shipping clerk. Yeah, that sounds like a shitty job. Tina got mad. Well, it isn't president of the United States or the keeper of a cat farm, but it makes good bread. But he makes good bread. Yeah, said Suicide. Maybe he maybe he'll buy some dope from me instead of bumming it. Tina almost told Suicide that Freddie was getting himself together and wouldn't be needing any dope anymore. But she decided that she'd better keep her mouth shut. If the gang knew that she and Freddie were trying to stay straight, then the gang would pressure them both all the more to get stoned. Hey, listen, said Suicide. How come you guys only come over when you need me to drive you someplace? Meat said, because you're too spooky, Suicide. Suicide laughed gleefully, taking it as a compliment. You think I'm spooky, he yelled. What the fuck you think you are? And he turned to the back seat, including Tina, Scuzz, Legs, and Chuck in his comment. And when he did so, the car careened into the oncoming lane. And Meat had to yank the wheel hard to avoid a collision with the bread truck. Woo! 
just try and get us to the wheelhouse. Woo! Just try and get us to the warehouse alive, will you? Meat said when the tires, tires is spelt with uh, T-Y-R-E-S. This is definitely the British version because that's the British way of spelling tires, I believe. Meat said when the tires stop squealing. Are you criticizing my driving suicide shot back? Yeah, yeah, I am, Meat told him. Just to show you, just to show who was boss, suicide abruptly swerved the car over to the curb and it screeched to a halt in front of the Unita Medical Supply Building almost catapulting his passengers into the windscreen or over it. They shrieked and groaned and cuss at him, accusing him of trying to kill them. Eat shit, eat shit, he yelled at them. We might as well have been smelling it in this ratty or rather catty car of yours, Tina jeered. I'm getting out. Without waiting for anyone to open the doors, she stepped out over the side of the convertible and down to the sidewalk, her red plastic miniskirt riding up, giving everyone a shot of her long, shapely legs and slim, curvy hips. The rest of the gang piled out of the car, and they all stood around taking turns swigging wine and staring at the big, corrugated steel warehouse with the sign lit up by spotlights and a few and a field of oil storage tanks way out behind it. A high chain-link fence surrounded the huge gravel lot, and loading docks on one side of the black rectangular building. Man, what a hideous, ugly place, Meat drawled. His coal-black eyes actually glowed. He got such a kick out of pure, unadulterated revulsion. I like it, Legs Pearled. It's a statement. <laughs> I like it. It's a statement. <laughs> I can imagine Leanna Quigley saying that. Um Scuzz put his arm around legs and turned up the volume of his ghetto blaster. Cue uh, Eyes Without a Face by the Flesh Eaters. Well, let's go get the prick, Suicide said. What do we do? Go up and ring the bell or something? Tina put out an arm to hold Suicide back. No, no, she said. I better not bring all of you inside. It might freak out his boss. Freak him out? Us? Suicide snickered. Is he some kind of weirdo? Scuzz said indignantly. No, his name is Frank Nello, Tina said. An old-fashioned... I'm not going to say that word because it's not a nice word. Uh, it spells W-O-P, the um, pejorative for uh, slur for someone who is Italian. Uh, an old-fashioned W-O-P like my father. Freddie had to get a haircut to even get hired there. Freddie even had to get a haircut to even get hired here. Now, if we show up looking like the way we do, I just don't want to blow it for him. That's all. Man, Freddie's turning into a queeb. I like that word, queeb. Suicide snarled. Cool, it said meat. Tina is right. We ought to barge in. What We oughtn't to barge in. What time does Freddie get off? Eight o'clock, said Tina. Haircut, suicide cursed. Like nobody tells me to cut my hair. Yeah, that's why you look like a coconut, Legs jibed. I love that. That's John Russo's. That's like John Russo's, like, that's the worst thing you can think of. Yeah, you look like a coconut. Uh, suicide glowered at her briefly, but kept his mouth shut. He took a lot from her because she secretly had the hot. He took a lot from her because he. So sorry. He took a lot from her because secretly he had the hots for her and was hoping to shoot Scuzz out of the saddle. 
Chuck had stayed out of the argument all this time as he was looking around scouting his surroundings. He had noticed across the street from the medical supply warehouse that there was an old cemetery surrounded by a high stone wall. The sign above the arch gate said Resurrection Cemetery. Hey, gang, Chuck said, pointing at the sign. We can go wait for Freddy over there. Not too many of Chuck's suggestions were ever heeded, but he felt that it was that this time he ought to score. The idea of goofing off in a graveyard was just the sort of thing to appeal to the zany group, including Chuck's heartthrob, Casey. He was tickled when she squealed. Great, really rad. I dig it, said Meat. We can lay on the grass between the tombstones and maybe do up a few joints till our man gets off work. All right, let's check out this bone orchard out, said Suicide, grinning and showing his rotten teeth. But first, I got to get something out of the car. He unlocked the trunk and dug his hands into a wooden box. What's in there? Chuck asked, coming to look over. Road flares. What are you going to do with them? Scuzz wanted to know. This is really rad, said Legs. I've always wanted to, you know, defile one. She pointed at the cemetery. I don't want to do anything sacrilegious, Tina protested, her Catholic upbringing making her timid. Also, her memories of how ghastly sunshine had looked in death were so vivid, she could almost picture him or corpses who looked like him becoming angry at her and other grave defilers, and coming back from the dead to seek vengeance. Come on, babe. Dead folks can't hurt you, said Meat, putting his arm around Tina. I kind of dig graveyards. They're free of malice, you know, real peaceful. The dead folks ain't scheming and dreaming and conniving anymore. They ain't going to rip us off. We ain't got nothing they need except your brains. Tina had admitted there was a certain folksy wisdom wisdom in what meat had to say but she still felt pretty leery as she and the rest of the gang trapezed under the wide stone arch of the resurrection cemetery she wished scuzz would have would have had the decency to turn down the volume of the new wave music that old new wave music in his jukebox but it was his ghetto blaster but it was still blasting he and legs were both undulating their hips in a sexy jerky dance as they approached the looming tombstones. It was truly an old, old cemetery. In fact, it was overcrowded, even if none of the guests were complaining. The gravestones and monuments seemed to be piled shoulder to shoulder, jostling each other for elbow room. Interspersed were numerous above-ground crypts, like little stone houses, some relatively plain and some utterly ornate. This place is a stroke, Suicide giggled, gesturing mad with a fistful of road flares. Scuzz cranked the volume on his ghetto blaster up even higher, and the new wave beat pounded out over the graveyard, echo echoing from the monuments. Legs started laughing and screaming like a banshee as she skipped and cavorted on top of somebody's grave, dancing and dodging around a huge headstone carved in the shape of a crucifix. Lightning flashed and thunder run, rumbled. Tina nervously stole a peek at her Mickey Mouse watch with the red plastic band that matched her miniskirt. Although it was only seven o'clock, the sky was already fairly dark due to the approaching storm. That terrifies me, by the way. Like th this sort of like description stuff is very scary to me. Still an hour to go before Freddie was supposed to meet Tina. She wished that the rain would pour down right now in buckets. If it did, then she'd have an excuse to run out of the cemetery without the gang teasing her any more than calling her a chicken. She just wanted to be with Freddie 
and it didn't seem to be too much to ask. He was the only one who understood her. She loved him and missed him and wanted to be in his arms without anyone else around to spoiling it. So that is chapters um, that is chapters four and five of Return of the Living Dead. Um, I'm sorry about my reading. It's hard with this tiny print and the strange phrasing. Sometimes you just want to uh, jump ahead or, you know, sort of interpret the words uh, in a sentence that makes more phonetical sense, flows better. Um, but yeah, so you can see where this is like probably the biggest deviation from the the movie is this like added subplot. And besides that, there's just like little things that are tweaked and, and, and switched around and, and whatnot. Um, as I said, you know, when I when I when I compound the movie on top of what I'm reading, like those descriptions about like the storm, they, they're very scary to me. When I think about the when I think about the storm, I uh, when I think about the tombstones, I imagine the cemetery from the movie, you know, um, I guess from time to time, it's actually sort of. It's actually sort of good. I, I usually always believe in reading the book first and then watching the movie. Um, but here's a great example where watching the movie first and then reading the novelization gives you sort of like a, a really clear picture of who you're reading in the novelization, which is based on the movie anyway. So I guess my rule of thumb would be read the book first and then see the movie unless you're reading a novelization and then obviously see the movie first and then read the book, if that makes any sense. Uh, so tune in next week for another two, probably two chapters maybe of Return of the Living Dead, the novelization. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Till next time, peace and hair grease.